We're going to get started with the Q&A now. I would like to, uh, first of all, remind all you folks about the, uh, inform you about the session for next week. We will have uh, Dr. Chris Kukucha, is a department, excuse me, a professor in the Department of Political Sciences at the University of Lethbridge. Um, and he will be speaking, the title of his talk next week will be, Is Canada Likely to Get Trumped? during the current NAFTA negotiations. So that's uh, bound to be a good one. All upcoming sessions, I'd like to remind you, are listed on SACPA's website. That's www.sacpa.ca. And all of our sessions can be heard in audio format, excuse me, audio format and on podcasts on iTunes as well. I would like to uh, let you know that there's also a suggestion box. Where's the suggestion box? I'm sorry. Okay. With that, I would like to call Sabrina back to the microphone uh, to begin the Q&A. Well, thank you again. Hopefully nobody's falling asleep because that was a pretty delicious lunch and I'm ready for a nap. But I will do my best to answer your, your questions and or make up something that seems reasonable. I've been known to do that. Hi. Hello. Hello. My name is Peter Beal and I've got two questions. First of all, for FASD, is there any genetic therapy research being done to ameliorate the problem? There is always research being done. Um, so I, I am, this is not my area of expertise, but what I can tell you is we do know that, um, for example, in lab rats, studies have shown that with the introduction of high doses of choline into uh, the mother's system during pregnancy, has been able to reduce some of the effects that the alcohol, the damage that the alcohol has caused. So the study of epigenetics is, is very big in FASD, and um, they, they are working towards all kinds of different theories around that. Not reversible yet, definitely. And I don't want anybody who knows somebody with FASD to start giving them high doses of choline, but um, it's, it's in the works, I, the sum of that, yes. Good. My second question is, a long, long time ago, before LSD became illegal, they were doing research with it and saying it was curing alcoholics. And I've even had one personal experience where a person who had taken heroin, normal heroin addict, had taken LSD and he completely stopped taking drugs. It just cured him overnight. So, you know, with years later, never going back to drugs. So is there any chance of experiments like that being done against alcoholism again? Is there any hope of something like that coming up again? Hmm. Um, interesting. Oh, so I don't, I don't know the answer to that. That's, that's the bottom line. Um, I, what I would think is that when we consume alcohol, when we consume any substance along that, whether it's uh, heroin or the fentanyl crisis that, that we're facing, 
what happens is when the drug is introduced into our system, it affects neurotransmitters. Basically, our brain has like little trees in, inside, and, and the top of the tree is designed to accept a chemical into the brain that fits inside that little neurotransmitter. And so if you're replacing one substance with another, the, the brain doesn't know that this is heroin and this is alcohol. It just knows that it, the top of that neurotransmitter has a good fit for that chemical that we're being introduced. And so I think it's, it's still getting that joy factor. Our neurotransmitters are designed to have um, positive chemicals receiving those posi positive chemicals like the serotonin. Um, and so that's typically what neurotransmitters are for. But any feel-good chemical will fit on top. So when you say it was cured overnight, I, I don't know how that would work other than I know it's, it's going to affect the neurotransmitter in the brain and still provide that feel-good sensation. And, and basically you've swapped one chemical for another. But not my field, and I probably talked too long about that one. Okay. Hi. Um, Sabrina and I have worked together a lot. I'm a lawyer in the criminal justice system, and uh, I just wanted to say, <coughs> me. Um, to congratulate you on your work because it's very meaningful, and, uh, and I know it makes such a difference in my clients' lives. Uh, <clears throat> what I wanted to do is go beyond what you said because you didn't want to take a position, and I'll take a position and very affirmatively say that incarceration is not the answer for people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder almost universally except for in the most severe uh, criminal situations where you know serious bodily harm is caused to someone because uh, it's you know it just doesn't address the issues um, in a way that benefits the person accused the accused person but it also doesn't benefit society we take people out of society for short periods of time put them in into <coughs> prison and there we disrupt um, patterns of positive uh, supports we disrupt their access to resources we disrupt you know they get cancelled on their age if they go to jail for so long other things everything falls apart it's really really disruptive and when they're in jail, um, I think you, you portray j jail as somewhat of an innocuous kind of uh, place. It's not. It's also a dehumanizing place, and we should recognize that. People are incarcerated, and it's, it's a process of dehumanization. Sometimes that has to happen for societal benefit. I understand that. But it's not a place where people come out better or people come out, uh, you know, especially when they're already damaged. Most often it's just a place where they'll be um, taught worse ways of coping and worse habits. And so, victimized, and completely victimized. victimized. Yeah, so it's not a good place for them. It's, an, you know, it's sad to say that you, know, you have to come here and justify to an audience why it's the best thing um, just on the basis of financial reasons. Surely it's cheaper not to incarcerate them, but surely as a society, we should be focused on what is right in terms of human conduct. And us human beings are advanced enough in this society to know that people with disabilities as severe as most people with fetal alcohol syndrome uh, or spectrum disorder need to be treated differently. So that's just what I wanted to say. Thank you, Ingrid. That was, I kind of just wanted to say that. So do you agree? <laughs> you know, um, obviously I, I agree. I, I don't think that 
it's a big surprise to anybody. Um, I mean, that, this is my job, is to divert where, where we can. Uh, in a strange twist, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here and say, are we ready to acknowledge that that's not the right place? And I'm going to give you an example. Right now, before the courts, uh, in the media, we're hearing all about uh, the case where a woman was, was sexually assaulted, almost died, has suffered horrific injuries. The person that uh, committed the offense, we, we know he, he's affected with FASD. This is all public knowledge. Are we prepared to say he's damaged? As much as he did all of that horrific uh, things to this young lady, he himself has been victimized. So as a society, can we look at this case and go, I feel bad for him? Like, why didn't we protect him? And why would we throw him in jail when he's, he's a broken human? How, how many of us go, oh my gosh, he doesn't need to go to jail. He needs to be protected. And I, I think, typically, the standard social response is, that crime needs to be punished. He needs to be locked up. I don't care what his disability is. He could not get away with what he did, right? And we feel that empathy for the, the victim. So, I mean, collectively, are we at a place in our society where we can say, that was wrong, that was bad, that can never happen again. But why did we fail this boy? Where were we when he was being abused? Where were, he, were we when, when he got dropped from services? And we, in my opinion, just my opinion, I'm going to say it out there, we failed him and we caused that event as, as a society. I, that's, that's how I feel. And I feel that way every time somebody gets turned down for supports or somebody's incarcerated for being a broken human instead of seen for, they're known by their offense. They're not known as people anymore. So that's my little soapbox moment. But just to, just to linger on that, right? I mean, it's easy to say, yeah, we need to do more, we need to do more. But then when we actually have a face and a name and we can see the victim and we can see the accused, it's hard to say, no, we can't put that boy in jail. We did that. We didn't, we didn't provide what we needed. So now that you have a face and a name to an offense around FASD, does that change anybody's thoughts? Um, and just putting that out there, right? Again, not expecting any sort of answer, but we'll move ahead. <laughs> My Hi. name is uh, Henry Heinen, Peter. Hello, sir. I am uh, a father to three children that are FASD affected. The oldest is 34. The second one is 24, and our youngest is 16. My wife and I have been foster parents for 35 years, so as a little bit of background, <clears throat> and I agree with the previous speaker, we've always worked really hard to keep our special needs kids out of the justice system. And also, it's a lifelong condition, and it's not their fault. Also, from our training, they will need all of their life an outside brain. So when we got going with our boy that's now 34, we didn't have a clue what we were getting into as foster parents. So we learned, uh, <clears throat> we learned as we went along to, to give him you know, somewhat of a good quality of life. And uh, so we still have guardianship. We still look after him 
and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's really tough. And what do you do? Do you kick them out at 18, which legally we could, when they come as little babies? You know, my wife, I couldn't, but my wife could never do that. So we still have them. The guy that's now 16, we picked him up when he was three days old in the hospital because his mother was so intoxicated that he had to go to withdrawal first. He is five and a half pounds. So, you know, so we have a real problem as society. My youngest one, he's one of nine. There are eight other siblings. They all have the same mother and they're all in different degrees fetal alcohol affected. My question is, as a society, what can we do? Okay, you got one. For the second one, what can we do? He is one of nine. So as a society, what can we possibly do to mitigate that, that a person like that, I know human rights and all that, what can we do? Is there a solution to that? I don't know one. Thank you. Thank you. Um, first of all, I'd just like to acknowledge that we have a hero in the, in the room. How many, how many parents, if when, when you had your child, you were handed a booklet that said, this child will never be what you expect. You are going to have heartbreak and hard times and problems with school and problems with behavior and problems with health and that's going to be forever. How many of us would have still taken our kids home if that had been the manual with them, right? We got foster parents out there that continue to do that. I know this beautiful little child is going to break my heart, maybe rip my family apart, but I'm still choosing to love them through this. That's, that's what it takes, is for us to to realize that FASD is a group, a population of people that may not ever achieve our expectations, but that doesn't mean they're any less. We have to reframe our own minds to say, this person still has amazing qualities, amazing things to offer our system, and we need to take advantage of that. You know, everyone, I have, I just hit the 200 mark. I have 200 clients that have been through the justice system. Not one of them has ever not shown artistic ability. The, the, the part of the brain that it enhances, I'm kind of off topic here, but the part of the brain that um, is artistic and, and creative seems to be so enhanced. And so we have an incredible population of artists and musicians. And, and that's not usually what FASD is known for. But when you put aside your expectations of this person and, and their life, and you realize what they have to bring to the table, it's a whole new world, and it's a wonderful world. I don't, I don't want to make it sound like it's all a struggle and, and it's all heartbreak and disappointment. It's, it's good times, too, okay? So what are we going to do about this? We are going to continue to be outspoken. It's, it, it's not okay to walk up to a woman who's visibly pregnant in a bar and say, whoa, put that drink down, darling. Like, let me teach you. We don't have a society that does that. But we need to be, right? We need to see that, that woman that's an alcoholic, that's of childbearing age, we need to go over and say, can I help you? Do you know where to go for help? Can I help you? But we don't. We close our eyes or we cross the street.
okay? This is a, this is a society issue. This isn't a mom drinks issue. This is on us, guys. It really is. We have to be outspoken, and we have to say change, and we have to be prepared to help. We don't need any more people out there. I, I'm on a soapbox, I'm sorry, but we don't need any more people out there who aren't prepared to roll up their sleeves and say, okay, what needs to be done? I'm going to confront the woman that's drinking in the bar. I'm going to go talk to that lady that's on the side of the road that's an alcoholic. And I'm going to offer my help. Because if I don't do that, then I'm the problem. And that needs to change. Thank that's, you, what, that's what we can do. We'll take the next question. Larry? Thank you. My name is Larry Alford. Thank you very much for the presentation and Thanks. for heroes like Henry's example. I don't know fetal alcoholic sy alcohol syndrome or disorder, spectrum disorder very well. But I do know um, a bit of the history, thanks to Mary and others who've brought some of that history to uh, mind of how we've treated some people in this world. And I just liken it to um, if I were to take a brand new puppy and put it in the cage and poke it and torture it and traumatize it for its entire life, I should not expect that it would grow up to be a normal functioning animal and that somebody wouldn't want to put it down or incarcerate it. Mm -hmm. um, similar, similar thoughts come to my mind mm -hmm. on treating fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and some of the things that our society has done do come back upon us. So I agree with that. My question is uh, Judge Derek Redman recently um, sentenced an offender, and I don't know the case, to uh, chess lessons and he went out and bought a basketball for another offender to uh, give them something different to do. Do you have any comment? Are you aware of that? Have you any comment on other forms of um, sentencing, imagination, sentencing? I can now say I do know about that because you and I had a great chat at lunch. So I, I wasn't familiar with Judge Redmond doing this, but brilliant strategy, right? We know that the brain forms kind of like a cauliflower. It starts from the brain stem and it grows out and around, okay? So when you have fetal alcohol damage, and, and I don't know about the, the chess players that were sentenced, but I do know that the part of our brain that handles our um, executive functioning, our cognitive ability, is at the front. It's our frontal lobe. That's the furthest distance from that brain stem to go. And that's why in FASD, those neurons get lost on the way to the frontal lobe. So there's a couple strategies that we like to use. When an individual has lost control, the easiest way to describe it is that they have gone to their caveman brain. Everything is shut down and they are functioning on their brain stem. So when they are not rational, when they are acting out, when they can't process information, that's because they're, they're functioning on a brain stem, um, basic caveman brain, and we want to change that. We want to bring thoughts, processes, neural pathways back up to the frontal lobe, and we can do that by simply asking them to think, count backwards from 10, for example, right? So when you're talking about a chess program, what is happening is you're forcing the frontal lobe to work, okay? And that's, whether you have brain damage or not, it's going to generate cognitive sparks. It's gonna happen. So if he was generating or issuing a, a sentence that says you have to play chess, he is keeping you in the rational part of the brain. Okay? Now when it comes to playing basketball, FASD individuals, again, I don't know who was sentenced here, but um, they have an on switch, they don't have an off switch. So if 
something has happened to, to cause a bunch of anxiety, that switch gets flipped on, and it can't turn itself off. So we have like fight or flight response. So if I'm upset, I can either confront it or I can run away. In the FASD brain, it, it doesn't go away after the crisis. It stays on and it keeps circulating. So how do we burn that energy off? We use exercise, okay? So we wanna bring them back into their frontal lobe and we wanna burn out that exercise. When I um, worked with a youth group, everybody laughed at me, but I had forced marches every morning. That's how we were starting. And we'd call it whatever, we'd call it some sort of treasure hunt, we'd pretend we'd lost a staff member and we were going to find them. We would do all kinds of things to get these kids out. And first thing in the morning, they're marching and that energy was dispersed. And then we had calm kids and then we brought them back and we brought that frontal lobe forward by doing functions that made you think. That is the easiest strategy to help self-regulate, okay? Those are the kinds of things. So I'm thinking, and again, I just made up a response to this, I'm thinking that would be Judge Redmond's thought. Appease the body and the mind, you have calmness. Thank you, Sabrina. Does Next question, sense? please. <laughs> Thank you for your presentation. My name is Douglas Mitchell. Uh, I'm just questioning, firstly, the figures that you put up there. Yes. I mean, do you really think these figures are authentically, or do they authentically reflect the incidence of this problem within this province? First question, no. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and thinking again, I mean, I, I'm always thinking of prevention rather than how you handle which of the things you're dealing with mostly. And where are we going with this? We don't have reliable figures, uh, and yet you're doing what you can, and I appreciate that. But I think we still have a long way to go on how we're going to deal with this problem and try and reduce the incidence. That's what I'm concerned about. I wonder if you have any comments on that. Sure. Um, until recently, we used to say, we based, um, we based systems on the fact that 1% of a population was affected. And, and that's where a lot of these numbers actually came from. Two years ago, at the international conference, the government announced we're off base with those numbers. And uh, some independent studies had said that it's not 1% of a population that's, that's affected, it's probably closer to four. In the same week during presentations, a, a couple more studies came forward and said, we picked some groups in Canada, in the US, and we got some better numbers, and it was shocking. It, it set everybody back, but they said, we're probably looking more at 11% of every population being affected. Okay, so um, we're calling it something else. We're calling it ADHD or whatever other numbers. Okay, so the scope of this is much larger than anybody. The government of Alberta said, it's, we've evaluated what's happening here, it's going down, uh, and I don't know how they thought they were gonna go down because no cure had coming up. Why is that? And we said, because you misidentified a whole. So when the 10-year strategic plan um, and our partnerships got, well, that you labeled this and this and this and this are actually FASD, and we're bringing them out what numbers we're actually talking about. 
So, so does that make sense? This problem is much because it, it's really when we don't have an accurate. Thank you very much for your presentation. Terry Shellington is my name. Uh, although she hasn't been officially diagnosed, uh, we often and incidentally, her mother was a survivor of the residential school, so the third, literally to the third and fourth generations. But my question is, you made comment related to FASD besides just brain damage, and I wonder if you'd say more about that, about how throughout the body FASD is um, evidenced. Sure. Um, so alcohol is, uh, it's what's known as a teratogen, and that means it, it breaches the, the blood-brain barrier. And when it does that, it affects every cell in the body. So we typically call it a brain-based disability because the brain is what is, is typically affected the most. But the reality is, is every cell in the body that is developing when alcohol is, is consumed is at risk to being damaged. And so we, we focus on the brain, but there was a study done um, <sighs> Kind of an interesting study. It actually was developed by a, a group of people that have FASD, and they'd gotten together for coffee one day, and, and somebody said, geez, my, my knees are hurting again. And this is a young group, and he said, you know, my knees hurt too. He said, yeah, I keep going to the doctor, and they, they find problems with my heart, and find problems. He said, me too. So they started talking, and they said, we all have similar problems. Why is that? And so they sent out a bunch of surveys, started asking a bunch of questions, and then the doctors went, this is also bigger than what we thought. And so it, it came back, and I, I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it came back to something like 6% of people in the population of FASD that are diagnosed have heart issues, and 2% are gonna have joint issues. And um, so really, intestinal issues, um, really depending on at which stage in development, mom consumed alcohol, and which cells were being developed at that time can play a factor on which part of the body is gonna be affected. So yeah, we have to, other factors though, right? Um, you might have a kid that's on ADHD medication, but when you start going, hey, you know what? There's also this, there's also this. Were they diagnosed incorrectly? Maybe we need to have another look. Okay, thank you, Sabrina. This will be our final question, thank you. And I'll keep it short. Uh, earlier, the uh, question was asked about using LSD as a, as a possible cure. There was a lot of research done in the 1950s and early 60s, a lot of it in Saskatchewan, Dr. Os uh, Humphrey Osmond, uh, Dr. Abram Hoffer, um, Dr. Duncan Blewett, and uh, also a book was written called The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley, who participated in that research in Saskatchewan. And uh, some research is now being done again in that field in some, because of course LSD was declared illegal uh, after that. And so there is research being done in a few universities across the country. My question is um, to you, just a bit, or more of a comment. Uh, there is a perception, especially in our community here, that this is ex almost exclusively a problem for First Nations people. Uh, I would beg to differ with that, that it also affects the larger society, that we do have uh, lots of folks who uh, have uh, indulged in drinking while pregnant and they're not limited to uh, the uh, Aboriginal community. And I just wonder if you'd comment on that. Yeah, you betcha. Um, and, and I will speak directly to that because uh, based on some studies that were done. Uh, the, a couple years ago, the, 
the studies that were done indicated that the number one group to give birth to an FASD child was college university age women because they're away from home, they are out partying, they're not thinking pregnancy, they're drinking, they're, they're not aware of what's happening. And so they were the number one contributors to this issue. Another study, the, the one that said 11% of our population um, is, is going to be affected, the results said if you are from a farming community where the family farm's been in the, the family for years, those are the people because um, you're not necessarily going off to college and university, you're inheriting the family farm, you're staying in this small enclosed kind of community setting and what is there to do but drink after hours, right? And so the highest number were these young farm kids that weren't going off to get other education necessarily but they were staying uh, in these smaller communities where drinking was the social activity in that group. I'm not saying it's true or not, just saying that was a study. So then why do we hear so much about First Nations people being the group um, that has the highest effect? Yet another study came out and said, why is that that we, we hear this? Turns out they are the group that are more aware of what is happening in their children. They are more aware of the amount of alcohol that's being consumed. They are saying this behavior isn't what we anticipated. And they're going and getting diagnosis. And they're asking for help. And they are saying, we admit it. We admit there's a problem here. And we want to address it. Whereas some of us white folks, we still hide under you know, that, that stigma of, oh my gosh, I'm going to be judged because I damaged my child. I'm not going to admit to that alcohol. First Nations people are more in tune with what is going on in their communities. And it's given them a, a bad um, outlook from other people. So their numbers are no higher. Thank you very much, Sabrina. Thank you very much, Sabrina. Uh, that concludes our session for today. I'd just like to remind you folks that uh, the speaker next week is Dr. Chris Kukucha speaking about uh, his topic of the top, excuse me, the topic is, is Canada likely to get trumped during the next, excuse me, during the NAFTA uh, negotiations? Thank you very much, folks. Thank you.